Good morning. Welcome to Ordinary Life, an educational offering by St. Paul's United Methodist Church. I'm Bill Curley and Holly Headley. And Holly, you have no idea how grateful I am to and for you. Likewise, thank you. Well, the last several weeks you have been doing the heavy lifting in here and I'm really, really, really grateful for you and for um, what you bring. Thanks. When are you gonna have your PhD? I, I'm hoping two years. So I have comps and then I have to write my dissertation. What are you gonna write it on? Uh, you know, healing from white supremacy and racism. A process of healing. Kind of, I guess, a proposal around truth and reconciliation in this country. Um, would you have had that before George Floyd? No. I mean, yes. I actually, that's what I have been wanting to write on. So it's even more timely with the tensions coming to a head right now. But no, it's been an interest of mine for a while. You know, it just occurred to me that one of the things I would like to hear you do is talk about the recent webinar you attended with Ilya. Oh, yeah, it was good. It was good. I'd to know about that. Yeah. So if you're watching and you have a need uh, that um, concerns your part in St. Paul's United Methodist Church, you have a pastoral concern, or know of someone who does, would you let us know? You can contact me through the Ordinary Life website. You can contact the church through St. Paul's website. You can simply call. You'll get a recording right now because um, during this period where we step back to uh, deal with the COVID issues, um, the phone will give you a recorded message, but they are listened to and responded to. And um, I hope you will do that. Remember the needs of people uh, that we can help through the EAC here. If you go on the, on to the St. Paul's website, you can find out what those needs and opportunities are. And if you haven't checked it out, the St. Paul's website has recently been like completely redesigned and um, it's really worth navigating. And Holly re and Richard redid ours. Well, some years ago, but we probably need a little refresher. We've refreshed a couple of things, but we need to... Particularly since starting the podcast. We have added some, some links and buttons on the first page that you can get easily to the podcast and Instagram and all of those things. So you got to you got to give me a lesson in Instagram. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. don't know. Okay. And I really appreciate when we interviewed Richard Wingfield this uh, last week. He made me feel better when he said that it was not that I was getting technologically incompetent. Right. It was just that there is more and more technology yes. to keep up with. Yeah, it changes so fast. And if you were here in this room uh, and watching the people behind the scenes, <laughs> you would know that we're getting um, in Ordinary Life uh, new equipment all the time and uh, makes it easier for Tim and William and Olivia and John to make all of this work. Yeah. So um, you're all pajama people now mm -hmm. or mimosa people or wine and cheese people or wherever you are. We, we know because we can tell we have people who watch in Canada, in uh, Europe, um, somebody in Czechoslovakia, Chechnya. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Australia, no matter yeah. who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. The, the title of this time today is Getting Our Spiritual Act Together. And as is true with what I think 
I call all wise and useful spiritual teaching. Um, getting your act together is something that you both can and cannot do. And I want to talk about the cannot do first, and then we'll talk later in this time together about what you can do. And we'll really elaborate on this in two weeks when we talk about uh, right effort. We're working our way through the eightfold path of, of Buddhism. I think it is the belief that we can finally get it all together, that there is a place to get to or a place to get back to that is causing so much difficulty and suffering in the world today, especially in our country. And it's all self-inflicted suffering. Seeking for some sort of lasting security is futile. The end of cosmological dualism and individual salvation clearly show us this. We have to do some um, unthinking. We have to get rid of some assumptions that we have worked on and um, turn them upside down. The assumptions that we have got to change, one of them is the assumption that we are individual, separate selves. That is simply not the case. And Holly will speak to that uh, as, as we go forward. The word that we are using for this series that we got from Thich Nhat Hanh is that we enter our, we are interbeings. We are all connected. And seeing this was the great insight of the first axial age. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Another assumption that causes us difficulty is that we should seek pleasure and avoid pain, and that that is a solution to our difficulty, especially the pain involved in seeing the pain of other people. I think it's like if, it, if we don't see it, it's not there, and that's certainly not the case, which leads to the third assumption that we must change, and that is thinking that there's someone out there who is to blame for our situation rather than taking personal responsibility for it. I hope you, you, you read uh, Darmut or Muraku's book um, that we recommend. It's just so emphatic on the need for the assumption of personal responsibility in our spiritual life for growing up. And I cannot think of a better time for us to be getting rid of these assumptions and putting better ones in place than this kind of enforced monasticism that we're going through because of COVID. We have an opportunity to come up with better ways to think and better ways to organize ourselves. The truth is furiously knocking at our front door and we might as well answer it and see what's there. Our secular culture seduces us into thinking that change is something that happens when we get to a new place, a new beginning, when we get what we've been look, looking forward to, when we get what we think we so richly deserve, then we'll be happy. And this shows up in the religion of our culture, which is consumerism. Just this week, Noel Chang, a member of St. Paul's, who is currently in New York taking care of his mother, uh, got her mail one day and saw an ad on the back page of a magazine that she gets, and he photographed it and sent it to me. <laughs> it reflects our culture completely. It is the Holy Bible book wallet. It is a wallet 
<laughs> it looks like a Bible. Yep. I mean, um, the ad in the copy, if you can't read it, says, our wallet just, look, just looks like a real Bible. And I, I, my response to that is, heaven help us. Yes. Real transformation, which is a mystery we can only create a space for and not something we make happen, most often happens not when something new begins, but when something old falls apart. Mm. The pain of that falling apart is immense. We're all grieving what we once considered was safe, our routines, the freedom together here like we once did. We're being forced to go as people we didn't know into a new place. And let's face it, most of us would never have ventured into the territory we are now in looking at white supremacy and racism and discrimination that occurs at every level in our society if we weren't forced by the circumstances of our day to enter that territory. And it doesn't feel good. It's not a, a feel good thing. Now, like most addicts, before they get sick and tired of being sick and tired, we will go to almost any lengths to keep things as they are. What we need now is patience. Remember uh, the key words in ordinary life are peace, love, joy, patience, and humility. And we need these qualities in our lives and we need guidance in knowing how to embody them. And this is why we are turning to Jesus and Buddha. They teach about freedom that is found in letting go. And we can learn to let go rather than trying to control and hold on tighter. And we begin to see what a sin certainty is. It isn't easy. Jesus refers to it as the narrow path. I want, to listen, I want you to listen to how Eugene Peterson translates that passage. The way to life, the way to God is vigorous and requires total attention. And if you read that in the chapter in Matthew where it is, chapter 7, you'll see that right before it is the teaching that we call the golden rule. Jesus knew, as did Buddha, how much letting go is required to treat others as you would have them to treat you. Mary Oliver wrote, to live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, let it go. Some of the things that we have thought worked well for us, we are now seeing don't, and we need to let them go. Change is a disconcerting reorientation for all people. And during this falling apart, people can close down, they can become bitter, angry, certain, divisive, or we can find new meaning. The difference is determined by the quality of our inner life. That's why the teacher of ordinary life keeps harping on having a daily spiritual practice. <laughs> uh, the parable that Jesus used for this and one that Thomas Merton made a great deal out of is the story of Jonah and the big fish. Mm. Um, we live in a confusing, shadowy place for a while 
and eventually we're spit up on a new and unexpected shore. And I think it might be helpful for us to have a good, well-developed sense of humor about this. Yeah. This is one of my favorite yeah. cartoons. Well, one of the things I love about that story is, um, is Jonah's resistance. And he, he resists it, but so in his wrestling, he has to be, he allows, he has to be transformed. It's a wonderful yeah. story. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to glean wisdom from it. So the temptation for a lot of people in a time like this is to grow rigid with certainty and defiance. And you see that, you see it uh, in, in our culture. D divisiveness over uh, things like science, politicizing science, where um, it seems that we have regressed uh, into a time where there is a battle between conservative religious faith and science. Mm -hmm. And it would be terrible if either one of those sides won. They've got to learn how to work together and to, to, to be together. Um, even wearing a face mask during this time has become um, politicized. My son sent me this. <laughs> the mask I wear to protect you recognizes the mask you wear to protect me. Namaste. Is that <laughs> namaste. how you would say that? Yes, like namaste. <laughs> yeah. So for people who have lived their whole lives with the worldview that embraces cosmological dualism and individual salvation, it's difficult to hear that there's another worldview. Just this week, I got an email from someone who asked to be taken off the Ordinary Life mailing list because they said that they assumed that a police officer would not be welcome here. I responded that I would remove them immediately, and I also said that that assumption was incorrect until her work got so overwhelming, the head of one of the Harris County Sheriff Departments was a front row attendee of Ordinary Life. Now, I have, I have repeatedly said it is not my intention to offend anyone. And at the same time, digging deeply into the practical application of the kind of future we are facing is tough to hear. Both Buddha and Jesus wanted liberation for all people. And it is my belief that the liberation that we are seeking wants nothing else than the liberation for all. The root of all difficulty lies in the notion that we're separate from each other. That cannot be allowed to be true for us, not if we're created in the image of God whose very nature is relatedness. Now, I'm going to do a piece that I did in a sermon in the cathedral here about a year ago. About 10 years ago, Michael Hart, a friend of ours, a photographer who attends Ordinary Life, mm -hmm. um, was in London to attend the funeral of a friend of his. And he sent me a photograph of an announcement board that was on the front of a church. It's like a, a menu that you see posted outside a restaurant so that you can look at the menu and see what you're in store for if you want to go into um, that restaurant. Uh. And I'm not sure that you can read what was on that board, but um, if you want to have it later to download, it will be on the Ordinary Life website. This is what the, the board said. Warning. 
Here we practice the inclusive gospel of Jesus Christ. That means you may be mixing with tax collectors, sinners, adulterers, hypocrites, Greeks, Jews, women as well as men, female and male priests, homosexuals, lesbians, the disabled, thieves, and other sinners. <laughs> the dying white people, black people, Asians, people from other races, Muslims, bishops, bigots, people of other faiths, strangers, heretics, and people with no particular faith at all, and so on. In fact, anyone like those with whom Jesus himself mixed. So beware, this is not a private club. Welcome to all. Again, sin is, certainty is a sin. I'm certain of that. <laughs> It is openness and a willingness to say yes to what is that carries us, carries us through to the other side. And look at history and just see that it's been people who have held on to things that they are for what they are so strongly, for things that they are for, not what they're against, that has allowed people to make it through a crisis. I'm thinking of things like being strongly for equality, and dignity for all. In religious spiritual language, it is love that always wins out. And I hope that what Holly and I are teaching in here can guide you in your own journey to an internal yes mm. to, to that. In doing this series that we're calling Interbeing, How Jesus and Buddha Can Guide Us Through the Pandemic, we're beginning with Buddha because his teachings on suffering are so explicit. Jesus taught about suffering too. He had compassion for suffering people and he had his own unique way of dealing with this, mainly by inviting anyone who would come into enter that empowering community that he called the kingdom of God that uh, empowered them to be. Buddha was uh, more systematic about his approach I don't want to create the impression that all Buddha taught about was suffering. It's not. Um, he taught release from suffering that leads to liberation. But we in our time won't find or experience that happiness until we question the beliefs and behaviors that there is anywhere for us to hide from the reality of what is. So I would remind you that these teachings, both from Jesus and from Buddha, come in the form of wisdom teachings. We did that the last two Sundays. They come in the form of morality teachings, which we're doing the second one of today, and they come in the form of mental discipline teachings. All the teachings of Jesus and Buddha focus not on what is good or bad, but on what is wise and useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a couple things come up for me. One is that we're in this messy middle. We're in the in-between, right? Trying to sort of figure out, uh, we, imagination is such that we can't imagine what can be just yet. And so we're sort of creating it as we go. And it also, you know, I, I still love this sort of comparison that um, Buddha sort of had the way or the system, and Jesus was the embodiment. And the invitation is for us to be also the embodiment of that way or process, right? And, and you know, I think we need to be aware that, that part of the suffering of this time uh, is that people are scared. Yes, and, and I think that 
you know, one of the one of the things we can sort of rest in is that we are scared together. We we are not knowing together. We don't know how to imagine what the future holds just yet. But we can participate in imagining it. And you know, what I think it's going to take changes in political processes, but I think it's really a deeply spiritual embodiment of doing things differently. So we can change political processes and systems all day, but if we're not spiritually invested in that, then the, then the changes just become kind of watered down. You said to me just the other day that a mentor of yours shared some advice about never speaking about religion or politics in church. <laughs> we're gonna talk about both. <laughs> And, um, you know, how, despite the fact that freedom of religion also means the right to not have one, we infuse religion and politics all the time in this country. We are one nation under God. God bless America, one of our national favorite songs. And in the rarely sung fourth verse of the national anthem, it reads, May the heaven rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must when our cause it is just. And this be our motto and God is our trust. Politics and religion are infused. I gotta, I gotta share this yeah. with you. I, um, I'm not on social media, except as you have really tried to Instagram. drag me into Instagram, which I still don't know how to use. You're on Twitter too. But I have to, I, I have to confess, I am on Twitter mm -hmm. because I follow Sarah Cooper. You love her, yeah. I do, I think she is so funny. Yeah. And I, um, I follow John Pavlovich, yes. a couple of other people who, uh, Shane Claiborne, yeah. people like, like that I, I follow. And uh, John sent out a photograph the other day of a tightly packed evangelical church, hmm. which in this time is insane. Yeah. And every other person in the church was waving an American flag. Yeah, again, politics and religion are so, the, the flag has come to symbolize almost as much as the cross does in America, in American Christianity. It's sad. Yeah, so that, you know, most of us know this controversy surrounding the former quarterback Colin Kaepernick and his decision to kneel for the national anthem before football games when he was still in the league in 2016. He's no longer in the league. So although silently kneeling before the flag is protected by our first amendment, and as is flag burning, by the way, this you can burn the flag according to the First Amendment as well. And even though kneeling and or standing before the flag has been done for decades, both as a stance of honor and protest, Kaepernick received tons of criticism for employing his right. The history is interesting, actually. So playing the national anthem before games became a consistent tradition after World War II. Even though it was played, typically the players remained in the locker room getting ready for the game. But after 9-11, players were expected to be on the field, but still allowed to kind of be wrestling around, sitting on the bench or getting water during the singing of the anthem. In 2009, it became a mandate that they were on the field. However, the mandate made it clear that players were not required to stand for it. Between 2012 and 2015, teams of all sorts received up to $6.8 million in patriotic funds for honoring military, the flag, et cetera, as part of the game. So again, we were infusing- um, Where'd that money come from? Uh, from different patriotic funds, uh, federal funds. Oh. Um, so it was, you, not all 
teams received it and some teams honored um, vets and military personnel without those funds. But we saw this infusion of sports and politics, if you will. And some teams did this, again, without compensation. It's a really interesting history to me, one that really picked up after 9-11 when the U.S. experienced a surge of pride and also fear. During all this time, though attention to honoring the flag increased, one's right to peacefully protest it was never erased. In a town hall when he was running for state senate, Beto was asked how he felt about football players kneeling during the anthem, I think by a room full of vets. I can't remember the exact context. And instead of dodging the question, he tackled it head on, framing it as a brave protest at the time against police brutality. Nonviolently, peacefully, while the eyes of this country are watching these games, they take a knee to bring our attention and our focus to a problem to ensure that we fix it. That is why they are doing it. And I can think of nothing more American than to peacefully stand up or take a knee for your rights anytime, anywhere, in any place. So I think of Colin Kaepernick's peaceful protest as right action based on right thinking that all people, all people deserve equity under the law. Feeling protected offers that sense of belonging and inclusion and safety that I think is a universal human need that we are striving for. This is both, as I said, just as I started, a political and spiritual imperative, and belonging is a political and spiritual imperative. We might have individual disagreements over his method, but his action harmed nobody and led with a desire for equal treatment. In contrast, the producer of the 1619 Project, which is excellent, and I highly recommend what diving. Is that? Um, it's a project that investigates our racial history, starting with the enslavement of Africans in 1619. And she has a podcast. She, she, there was a whole New Yorker segment dedicated to the 1619 Project. It's an ongoing kind of um, uh, unveiling. And I think that uh, Oprah is about to do a series, a television series on it. Um, with her. So it's, the podcast is wonderful and I highly recommend checking it out. But Nicole Hannah-Jones talks about in the first episode of the 1619 Project, her childhood home, which was an older home on a corner lot in a working class neighborhood with a tall aluminum flagpole in the yard. She says no matter what the condition of the house was, that was a, her parents, she said, were working class and didn't make a ton of money that there was often paint chipping, railings needing replacing, but the flag was always untattered and perfect, replaced by her father at the first sign of wear. She never understood this, why her father, who was the son of sharecroppers in Mississippi, in a county that lynched more black people than any other county in the state. But as a young man, he had joined the military and he served for some years with the hope that if he served, his country might also serve him. Though he stayed enlisted for years and lived in Germany and spoke German fluently, when he returned, he was given only menial jobs, but he continued to fly the flag nevertheless. His rationale to his daughter was that he flew it to remind himself and others of the intent of American ideals and what it says it wants to be rather than what it might actually be. It's a reminder to be in pursuit of ideals of liberty and justice for all. Meanwhile, as a teenager, Nicole writes about how she sat for the Pledge of Allegiance as her sort of protest. She didn't understand it. 
But as she began to talk about this with her father, she began to understand and uh, that the pursuit of ideals is, is what, what the flag came to represent. So I think of my own grandfather, who was a World War II vet and a military man like Nicole's father. We are told he was on the front lines of freeing Dachau, a concentration camp in Germany that killed 41,000 people. I cannot imagine confronting that kind of suffering and not being touched by it. I cannot imagine that this was embedded deep in his psyche. I was told he stayed enlisted for five more years after the war, wore his colonel uniform, and taught in the Army Corps of Engineers. We are told he was a hero, and he was honored as such upon his return. In my eyes, all three of these men that I juxtapose are heroic. All participated in right action. These peaceful protesters, who are on the next slide, marched with Martin Luther King Jr. during the Civil Rights Movement and carried the flag as a symbol of their right to vote. This photo reminds me of one of my favorite Langston Hughes poems, I Too. It says, I too sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen. When company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen, then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I, too, am America. Their representation of the hope for the flag is also right action. Again, I want to infuse that sort of spiritual need for belonging that I think the symbol of our flag is representing in all of these cases. So this symbol can be used to um, peacefully in many different situations and also used to support right speech and right action. It can also be used for evil, I think. We can justify terrible things under the symbol of the flag, just as we have justified terrible things under the symbol of the cross. So it's not the symbol itself that is problematic, but the behavior that can surround it. The behavior that can surround such symbols is also, can also be uplifting and inclusive. I think that's where we have choice, is what symbols, how do we want to honor the symbols in our life with more inclusivity and equity? Which is, again, you know, Jesus' whole message was inclusivity and equity. And I believe that this, you know, I, I wanna believe that as, a, as an American citizen, I, I love this country, I love living here, and there are many things that I think we can still improve. So I feel that I can see that symbol and say, that represents my continued effort to persist in equity and inclusion. I, I think that one of the things that I would like to stress is that there is a huge difference between uh, being a patriot and being a nationalist. Yes, absolutely. Very different things. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Holly, another thing that I uh, thought about listening to you and reading over the work that we did this week is uh, how fragile any system is. Oh gosh, yeah. We were in um, Bosnia and Serbia in the Balkans uh, a couple of years ago and heard the history of how Yugoslavia split apart and how a man whose name I cannot pronounce um, 
a sociopath who was trained in the United States, educated in the United States, returned to his homeland and turned the Serbians and the Bosnians against each other. And it was just an ethnic cleansing mm -hmm. for people who had lived next to each other. Right. I mean, this seems the kind of thing happened when French betrayed their, their Jewish friends uh, in World War II. Or and Germans, in, yeah. We were Germans. Yeah. And uh, so a system is fragile. It's very you, fragile. You need to be very careful. Yeah, and you know, it does matter sort of what is the sort of messaging we're hearing in our system, right? What is our messaging and what participation? This is where, you know, sometimes we look so much to sort of the leader or, or the figurehead to help us navigate the system. But I think what we're being called upon right now to do is to participate in the system to change it, right? To participate in ways that might actually bring about um, equity and inclusion, as opposed to let somebody else tell us how. And so that's where I think this requires this discomfort, this messy middle of going, ooh, I, maybe, maybe this is about personal responsibility and what can I do to participate? And the role models that we're using to teach from both Jesus and Buddha uh, did precisely that. Mm -hmm. Jesus in a much more radical way than Buddha did. Mm -hmm. But Buddha even called what he came up with as the middle path. Mm -hmm. He was not willing to go to either extreme, but right. stay the middle way. Right. And when Jesus walked into the temple to upset the table of the money changers, he was really going against the system of his day, which was right. a binding up of the religious and political system into one unit where they fed off each other. And Jesus said, no, that, that's not right. You gotta yeah. stop this. Yeah. And of course they killed him. Yeah. S yeah. I mean, there's a risk, right, at, at, of sort of, of, again, being in the messy middle and challenging it. There's a risk, but I think the more collective we are and kind of shaking ourselves awake and participating, then the more safety there is in numbers, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that happens sort of in good and bad ways. But mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm curious, will we look for the ways that create um, a healthier system for more people? So, yeah, but so recently this photo was captured during a Black Lives Matter protest in London. As many of you might know, these protests have sort of been shaken awake all over the world. Not because what we also learn is that while racism is unique in America, it is also a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. And this photo, in, in many protests, there are three factions. One, the protesters who have been of all races and who are taking to the streets to demand equity and justice. Two, the police who are there um, as protectors and are often dressed in riot gear. And number three, there's often a faction of counter protesters, mostly white, who are claiming to be against what the protesters are for. So you can imagine there's some tension. Um, some fights have broken out for sure between the factions. Police have done anything from throw tear gas onto the crowds or arrest people or broken them up in all factions. But this picture tells us a different story. This black man, a protester named Patrick Hutchinson, saw the white counter protester who slung over his shoulder on the ground who, and he had received injuries to his face and body. Uh, because a skirmish had broken out between some factions. So he put this, instead of coming to this scene and raining blows upon him, continuing an attack, 
He picks him up, throws him over his shoulder, and carries him to the police, to this third faction, and says, can you take care of this man? His friends made a moving circle around them so that they could kind of wade through the crowd without being harmed, further harmed. So it's like a permeable membrane that they sort of made, like a cell membrane keeping them safe. And this man, who is slung over his shoulder in a fireman's carry, was against what Hutchinson was marching for. But instead of participating in the violence, he rescues him from further harm. And the quote that was spoken by um, Hutchinson was, it was just the right thing to do. Just because somebody's up to no good doesn't mean you have to harm or kill them. Patrick Hutchinson's behavior is right action. I believe both his protest and his compassion demonstrate that. I, I mean, I just find that awesome, you know, that he could just find in himself, like to continue to voice the desire for justice and sling somebody over his shoulder and carry to safety who is opposed to his right. need. So the examples I've given touch that sort of liminal edge between religion and politics. When politics disregards compassion and equity, it is anti-religious. Where it stands for inclusion and goodness, I think it's deeply spiritual. When I consider right action, I think it can be both demonstrative and reparative. It says, my life is as important as yours, and yours is as important as mine. And until that becomes reality, I'll continue to demonstrate. It says, as Lila Watson did, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you've come here because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. I love that quote. That's beautiful. Yeah. And that, that's interbeing. Mm -hmm. Our liberation, our well-being, I want to say our spiritual transformation is bound up with each other's. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, we've, that's what interbeing is, is that these ripple effects, these sort of push-pull of everything I do or you do is going to affect the collective. But from a reparative standpoint, I think right action can look like saying, I'm sorry, I did that wrong. Let me try again. <laughs> my favorite example, I may have told this story before, is from my own life. <laughs> I don't remember you telling it before. I have lots of... Lots of t opportunities to try again, okay. to redo something. Um, but I, I had been outside and I was trying to clean our fountain. I was fixing the motor and cleaning it out and it was disgusting. It's a gross job because actually it's like sewage under there that sort of collects at the base of a fountain. And I was frustrated, I was sweaty, I was tired. I had been doing this on my own. And I stopped to wash up because I had to make dinner. and. You know, it didn't, <laughs> anyways, it, did, it didn't really, I didn't really take that time to transition between one activity and the next. I washed my hands, I took off my galoshes and sort of went inside. And when I came inside, my kids had literally like rearranged the furniture. There were pillows all over the place. And I definitely have a little bit of vanity about like wanting the house to appear somewhat undisheveled <laughs> and so, seemingly someone had like dumped an entire bag of chips on the couch we don't eat on the couch I mean it's just you know there was just like just felt chaotic so I came in from feeling frustrated I came into this perceived chaos immediately my eyes just see the mess so both inside and outside there's mess and I started yelling and I'm ordering them around do this clean this up, clean this up blah 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 you know my mommy mad voice and Evan my youngest and ever the sort of like justice seeker in our family. He's kind of a protector. He marched up to me, hands on his hips. He was probably five at the time and said, 
perfect show of right speech. Mommy, you need to speak nicely to me. Got your attention. Got my attention. And I had a choice there. I could have continued with my anger. I could have been triggered and continued on my sort of war path of, but his right speech gave me pause and I finally slowed down and I finally caught my breath and I kneeled down to him and I said, you're right, will you give me another chance? And in the ways of kids, he said, sure, as if nothing had ever happened. So I went back outside, came back in the house and I was like, hi guys. There's a mess that needs to be cleaned up. <laughs> and so it became this sort of playful reenactment of redoing the mess and undoing it. And I just, you know, I had to take a minute to get in my right mind so that I could then speak right and act right to my son. This is an example, I think, of reparative right action. I think we could all learn to speak more nicely to one another. You know, when uh, I, I want to stick this in here and I won't yeah. take long doing okay. it because I know you have, have more, but um, we said last week that in the Eightfold Path, Buddha devoted one of the steps to right speech. Yes. And in right action, there are actually five things that mm -hmm. are addressed, all mm -hmm. important. Yeah. And we're not, we chose not to deal with them discreetly, but to speak in a more metaphorical way about them. But I'll tell you a practical way that I got introduced to what uh, Buddha actually gave these five things as instructions to lay people. They were not instructions necessarily to his monastic, uh, to his monks, but to lay people who wanted to follow the Buddhist path. He said there are five things that you must do. My introduction to them in a visceral way was when I went away and did the mm. 10 day. Mm -hmm. And uh, I won't go into that at, at length. Um, I did it because Sherry had done it and I saw what a profound difference it made for her. Mm. We uh, had been out to dinner with dear friends of ours uh, uh, one night and um, he was a psychologist, now lives in California, and they had requested that we go to dinner early with them because he started seeing people at seven o'clock on Monday morning. Mm. And I couldn't believe that. But anyway, we had an early dinner and uh, I said to him, Don, you really start seeing people at seven in the morning? He said, yeah, I do, but I don't start listening until 10. <laughs> <laughs> My friend who's a psychiatrist says, you just have to listen really well 30% of the time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so the purpose of that dinner was for us for, to hear about his experience of doing the 10 day. And um, my internal reaction after hearing it was, there is no way in the world I would ever do that. And Sherry's response was, I'm going the next chance I get. And she did and she came back. I saw what a difference it made. If you do the, the 10 day, you agree to these five things. You agree that you will speak no lies. Mm -hmm. That's the reason it's a silent retreat. That there will be no sexual misconduct. Mm -hmm. That's the reason the retreat is sexually segregated and you are instructed not even to look into the face of another person. Mm -hmm. uh, there, you cannot steal. That's the reason that the retreat is free. It's freely given. Mm -hmm. It's like sweet grass. Mm -hmm. It, it yeah. has to be given yeah. to you. Yeah. Um, and um, you can't kill. That's the reason that the, 
the menu at the retreat is vegetarian. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you begin to get a sense during embodying these things of found difference they make in right. life. Right. Just keep your mouth shut. And just as you sort of listen to your own inner world, not speaking lies. So when you find yourself, you know, the thoughts become things. When you find yourself thinking in a way that is a lie about the self, a lie about the way you perceive the world, it, it, you have the silence, the quiet of mind to catch it. I well, hope, I, I, I hope I, for you that that happens. I, I, <laughs> I had not gone through Jungian analysis at that time and had not been trained in, in analysis, but boy was I aware of all the projections and all the transference that was going on inside me uh, the the man who was assigned to the position, meditation position just immediately to my right and left, we were not parallel with anybody, mm. was a Buddhist monk from Thailand, mm. <laughs> a young man. Mm -hmm. And he floated in in his robes and settled down on his cushion and did not move. The first sit in the morning, you, you're awakened at 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh-huh. That's early. Yeah. <laughs> you sit for 16 and a half hours a day with appropriate breaks, right? right? He never moved. And so I'm sitting here being so envious of him yeah. and so judgmental of him. You're like looking out of one eye. At, he's, a, at he's a retreat not where we're being trained and not being judgmental. <laughs> That's right. Why can't I do it like this? All of this stuff is, yeah. is coming up. Yeah. That's one of the values of having a spiritual practice is yeah. that you do become aware of the process of your own thinking. Yeah, yeah, the monkey mind, so to speak. Yeah. I think what that's what's so cool about you know the, the Eightfold Path is that it's not a, it's not just this sort of one-time lifelong journey where one step neatly folds into the next step. You know, we get an opportunity to practice the Eightfold Path every minute. I mean, that five-minute interaction with my son was an invitation to practice getting in my right mind, in my right speech, and in my right action. You know, so it happens sort of cosmically on this wide level, but it also happens in this macro sort of small way that we have opportunities to get on the path, so to speak, in any given interaction. And I, I think that's a sort of beautiful, magical um, embedded in all time, you know, just sort of an embedded way of thinking about it, I guess. But uh, Jim Finley's response to those of us who say, I'm one of them, who struggle with meditation, silent meditation says, as many times as you get distracted, that's how many times you get to return. Right. Yeah. And that's beautiful. So I guess, you know, something I ask a lot is what keeps us from interbeing, from being one? We already inter are, but what keeps us from sort of consciously enacting that on a social level? I think so often it's what we think, say, and do, the blockages that we experience there, the judgments as you brought up. And as with the evolutionary tool of camouflage, which I talked about last week, we act out of self-protection and preservation rather than connection, empathy, and mutual empowerment. Thich Nhat Hanh says, right action is the practice of touching love and preventing harm it is essentially a reverence for life. Just as there are many examples in nature of self-protection, there are also, like on this picture, many examples of interbeing and mutuality. I've mentioned this before, but I think some of these photos are worth showing again. This article where I found this turtle 
with these fish on him begins with, species cannot live alone. This is for kids. This is a magazine for kids. All life needs other life to survive. Here, surgeon fish feed the algae growth of the turtle shell as a classic example of two species needing each other. This is an example of a symbiotic relationship. Imagine if kids learned more of that and less of competition, winning, and individual success. In the next photo, we see starlings sitting on the back of a stag, ready to pick off the ticks and mites from his skin. Again, one species helping the other to better survive. Bill said at least, I don't know, a hundred, maybe a thousand, maybe a million times that gratitude can change our lives. The Haudenosaunee Native American people say a Thanksgiving address as a daily sunrise prayer and as an invocation to begin meetings, even those that are bound to be difficult. In this way, they prepare their minds, their hearts, and their speech so that in conducting their actions, they remain mindful that all all species, including those of the natural world, are one, and all are embraced as family. It's a really long address. It's, um, she reads it in Braiding Sweetgrass, and um, I downloaded it on our blog this week, too, so that people could have just readily access. The whole access. thing? Yeah, yeah. But I, I just want to read a little bit of it, because, you know, she goes, it, the, the, the Thanksgiving address goes through every creature, from the plant to the seeds to the, um, to the living animals. So, I mean, it's just, it's, you know, they call um, plants non-four-legged people. <laughs> I just, I thought that, I just think that's beautiful. So from the end it reads, we gather our minds to, great, to greet and thank the enlightened teachers who have come to help through the ages. When we forget how to live in harmony, they remind us of the way we were instructed to live as people. With one mind, we send greetings and thanks to these caring teachers. And everyone then says, now our minds are one. Now we turn our thoughts to the creator or great spirit and send greetings and thanks for all gifts of creation. Everything we need to live a good life is here on this mother earth. For all the love that is still around us, we gather our minds together as one and send our choicest words of greetings and thanks to the creator. If we were all here in person, I would have y'all say with me, now, now our, our minds, minds are, are one. one. Thanks. We have now arrived at the place where we end our words. Of all the things we have named, it was not our intention to leave anything out. If something was forgotten, we leave it to each individual to send such greetings and thanks in their own way. Now, now our, our minds, minds are, are one. one. The, the author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Wall Kimmerer, kind of ponders out loud what if every congressional or senatorial meeting was begun with something like this? What if every meeting that we knew was going to contain tough negotiations began with this kind of right mind? With right mind, we're prone to right speech and right action. With words like these, we cannot forget interbeing. Robin Wall Kimmerer imagines this possibility over and over in Braiding Sweetgrass, which we, I've been listening to, you've been reading. I was thankful you mentioned it because it reminded me that I hadn't finished the audio book. And I just, I love it. Are you done with it? Almost. I'm about 40 minutes, I think, from the end. Um, but she says what we need is not a necessarily brand new, but some rebirth of an old story. And she calls it a restoriation of American I ideals. I love that word. I do too. I want to 
I totally want to co-opt it. <laughs> if our minds were one, we would not see Kaepernick's kneeling as a threat. Instead, we would hear the plea behind it, the years of pain. If our minds were one, we could see the patriotism and hopes for change. If our minds were one, we could see the humanity in a black man carrying a white man to safety intended to be against him. If our minds were one, countless individuals needn't have died because of fear or prejudice. So. I have a question to ask you. Yes. And it's a question that I ask my children. Mm. Um, you are uh, younger than I am. I am. And you have these three pre-teenage boys. <laughs> when do you have time to listen to something? While I'm repainting the laundry room. <laughs> That's it? <laughs> While I'm, I mean, you know, you find time when I walk the dog. I, I mean, it, my my kids and you mm -hmm. seem to listen to all these podcasts and mm -hmm. do all these things that I, you know, barely have time to make a grocery list. It's. I think it's like a constant multitasking. It's it's not necessarily great for sort of you know mindful attention <laughs> all the time, but you, I. Josh is really good at really making space for himself to read and listen and ponder. I'm a little bit more erratic, like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm putting away the dishes. I can put on my headphones and listen to the book I've been listening to, you know? Okay. So uh, just kind of in any moment. And I'm not engaged with my children all the time. They're, they're quite creative and um, independent, and they like playing with one another, too. So uh, you know that Sweetgrass, she begins the book by talking about it's not something that you can buy. Right. You have to be given. Yeah. And uh, the other day I came back from working out and there was a uh, Starbucks, I think, bag hanging on my front door. Now, and inside it was a long braid of sweetgrass. Yeah. He said that and on said, our podcast. Yeah, somebody yeah. said, that, Pam said, um, I hear you're reading this book, so. Oh, that's so beautiful. Sweetgrass. Yeah. I have it sitting on my desk. That's I awesome. waved it over Sherry saying it would, would heal, heal her. her. Well, it does have healing properties, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, as I indicated at the start, there's both good news and bad news in this business about getting our spiritual act together. There is the possibility of ongoing enlightenment. That's the good news. Mm. It involves work. And for many, that's the bad news. Actually, I hear it as good news when I uh, hear in the teachings of Buddha and his interpreters and when I hear in the teachings of Jesus and his interpreters like Jim Finley, whom Holly mentioned, that there is actually a method, that there's actually a way to walk. Uh, I hear that is very liberating. I, I benefit from that kind of guidance. Mm. I remember uh, the first form in which I received the teaching about spiritual work being difficult. I, I asked my spiritual teacher in the 60s a question that in essence said, what can I do to be? And he said, nothing. There's nothing you can do to be. Hmm. And if you embrace that, if you really embrace that, if you understand it, then I will teach you the things that people who are busy being do. 
And one of them was keeping a gratitude journal. Yeah. Or yeah. keeping a journal, keep up with your dreams. Yeah. Read something that enriches your, your spiritual life. Um, and you see these things in the Eightfold Path. You see these things in the Beatitudes. And each of us is responsible for taking what we learn in a place like this, as well as in the head part of our spiritual practice, and putting these things into practice in our lives. That is, how do we integrate these things in our daily life? And I don't believe we can do that easily unless we talk with other people about them. Uh, and after we find a path to walk toward freedom and love comes the hard part of walking that path. As I've heard Jack Cornfield put it time and time again, after enlightenment, the laundry. That's right. After the wedding, the marriage. Yeah. Uh, and there is nothing in American culture that supports this kind of thing. The frequent response I get when I try to push spiritual practice onto people is, I don't have time for this. And the fact is, it takes time. But I promise you, having a spiritual practice will transform everything you touch if you are faithful to it. And I want to be clear, teachings uh, like the Eightfold Path, they are not about trying to make you a good person. You are already a good person. Um, they just are reminding you who you really are. One of the exercises that Jack Cornfield one time had us do was uh, imagine a situation. You're having difficulty with your partner or with someone, uh, whatever. Imagine a situation and you're in the midst of trying to figure out how you're going to handle this and there's a knock at the front door. Mm. And you get up and go to the front door and open it and there is Jesus or there is Buddha. Mm. Take your pick. And you invite them in and they sit with you over a cup of tea and you tell them the difficulty that you're dealing with yeah. and you ask their advice. And if you listen carefully, you will be given some really wise and useful guidance. More than likely, keep your mouth shut would be, <laughs> would be a, a good piece of advice for most of us. Yeah. Or to ask the question that Ruby Sales asked. Uh, where do you hurt? Does it hurt? How can I help? Mm -hmm. And when you think of it, that advice didn't come from that imaginary Jesus or Buddha that came from within you. Mm -hmm. It's already in you. I said last week, I believe we all already know what we need to do to interbe. Yeah. And we have to be willing courageously to face those blocks. Uh, get acquainted with that Jesus in you or with that Buddha in you because we are inevitably going to hit more times when we are lost and scared and upset and needy and angry and in pain. And we will need this inner wisdom and compassion for being able to go forward. Spiritual practice, getting our religious and spiritual act together is learning to be at home with what is and with who we really are. They're not about being moralistic. They're about creating a context and a container or a method for the ongoing inflowing and outflowing of love. People on both the right and the left are busy trying to be right, so busy that we're losing the capacity to be related. Now we are, as we've said, related already. We're just not embracing that reality but everything we do matters. That's this teaching. 
These ethical teachings affect every aspect of our lives. What we think, what we say, what we do, everything matters. Violence cannot be ended by more violence, only by compassion and understanding. Now, since the teachings of Jesus constitute my home religion, I speak out of that context when I talk about the outflowing and inflowing of the love of God. For centuries, Christianity has been presented as a belief system, and this belief system has supported a wide variety of things. Colonialism, racism, environmental destruction, subordination of women, clergy pedophilia, white privilege, stigmatization of people of the LBGDQ plus demographic and more. What would it be like for people who claim to be Christian to rediscover their faith, not as a problematic system of beliefs, but rather as a generous way of life, a way of life that is rooted in contemplation and expressed in compassion, a way of life that makes amends for its mistakes and is dedicated to, as we Americans like to put it, liberty and justice for all. For centuries, the church has presented God as some far off distant deity who is angry at those who don't believe in him or belong to the right club. You will not find any of that teaching in the teachings of Jesus, the one who welcomes outsiders in and whose primary teaching was about forgiveness. What would it be like if we let Jesus and his message lead us to a new vision of God and of this globe, if we really got it, that all that is and all who are live and move and have their being in this sacred context. For centuries, Christianity has presented itself as an organized religion. And what this has come across is as an institution that is averse to change. What might happen if we were to really embrace evolutionary cosmology and saw that what we are called to do is to be creative, constructive, and forward-leaning, and that we saw our task to be that of challenging all the institutions of our society to learn, to grow, to mature toward a ministry of reconciliation. First of all, within ourselves and then outwardly. People who are at war with themselves easily go to war with others. A ministry of reconciliation with our neighbors, with our enemies, and with all of creation. I believe that if we are to be truly spiritual, if we are to get our spiritual act together, it makes sense to turn to Jesus and to Buddha for answers to these questions. Both of them stress love and compassion as that which has a priority above everything else. That's it. That's it. So thanks, Holly. Thank I love you. teaching with you. Thank you. Me too. This is, you've so, got such rich stuff <laughs> and bring it to us in such a good fashion. Thank you. You too. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step. And we will see you here next Sunday.